Praise the Lord. I, uh, it's always, it always takes the pressure off of me when I can stand up here and just think, man, the gospel has already been preached abundantly this morning. And uh, praise the Lord for that, for uh, his faithfulness and our celebration in the waters of baptism and uh, our time of worship together. And uh, now uh, our time in the Word. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles for one last time to the book of James, to the book of James. We're actually going to be starting in chapter 1 this morning, kind of doing a quick overview of all that we've seen in the book of James. So seven months ago, we began our uh, study in the book of James. This is going to be our 23rd and final sermon in the book of James. We started James so long ago that some of you uh, maybe aren't old enough to remember this. Baby Conrad, you're not necessarily old enough to remember this, but gas used to be cheaper than $3 a gallon when we started in the book of James. Imagine that, and now here we are, uh, 23 sermons later, and uh, it's been a blessing to be in the book together. And so uh, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to do two things. First, we're just going to do kind of a, a very fast, like thousand-foot view, overview of the, some of the things that we've seen in the book of James thus far, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the last two verses. And so uh, hopefully you've turned to James chapter 1 by now. We will have the verses on the screen. You see, usually I don't put the verses of our main passage on the screen, and there's a reason for it. Here's a behind the scenes. The reason for that is I want you to have your Bibles because it's good to have it in front of you. But this morning, I'm going to put it on the screen for you because we're going to be going pretty quick and so uh, through some of the different things. And so uh, please turn in your Bibles if you have them to James chapter 1. Uh, we'll be going through that. And so before we do any of this, let's pray and let's ask for the Lord's help. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, God, um, let me just say thank you. Thank you for this privilege of worshiping together. I'm always uh, just overwhelmed with your goodness and the fact that we can gather together as your people freely here as a family. The taste of what eternity is going to be like, God. We praise you for that. We thank you. Thank you that we could celebrate with baptism in Chelsea and Harper and the miracle that you've done in their hearts by bringing them uh, from death to life, and the way that we can picture that in the waters of baptism this morning. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in our church who's following you and hasn't been baptized, Lord, that maybe um, that they would start praying about that, and that um, this would be even maybe just uh, an opportunity for them to think about what that would look like in their own hearts, Lord. If there's somebody who in this room who doesn't know you yet, who hasn't tasted your goodness and known uh, the grace, known what knows what it means that you will hold them fast, God. Let they have a strong and perfect plea before the throne of God above. I pray that they would know that this morning and come to faith in you, God. Help us as we look back on what we've studied in the book of James, and uh, we just pray that you would be in all of this, Lord. It's all worthless if your spirit doesn't move and work in our hearts to help us understand what your word says, and so we just pray that you would do that in a mighty way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the blessings of being in this preaching, kind of regular preaching role here at Rock Prairie is, uh, it's a unique thing, it's a kind of an attachment that you get to the books that uh, you get to preach through. Like I said, we've been in uh, James for 23 sermons over the last seven months, and since I've been here... Uh, for three years now. We've gone verse by verse through the books of, Col we started in Colossians, and then we uh, went into Ruth, and then we did the first half of John, then we went through First Peter, and then Judges, and now we're finishing James. And maybe as some of you, if you're newer to our church within the last three years, maybe you can kind of think back and be like, oh yeah, I started coming in Judges, or I started coming in First Peter, or whatever. It's a good marker to kind of
of think about uh, our life uh, as a church. And every time we've reached the end of the book, I've kind of been in this place of kind of being torn between a sadness for, uh, for what we're leaving behind and an excitement for what's ahead. It's kind of that same thing that uh, when you graduate from high school, right? And you're like, well, I'm going to be saying goodbye. Realistically, a lot of these friends that I've made, I'm going to be saying goodbye to, but I'm excited for what's to come. And in the same way, that's true with the book of James. And if I can kind of pull that analogy, probably stretch it beyond what it should be, I would say that like my high school friends, James has put me through the whole gamut of emotions as we've studied it together. He's encouraged me. He's challenged me. Maybe want to pull my hair out sometimes in confusion of what are you saying here? What in the world does this mean? Slap me in the face with conviction a couple of times. I don't know about you. It certainly happened to me. But above all, he's helped me grow in my love for Jesus. And something we haven't really talked about a whole lot other than at the very beginning uh, since we've studied the book of James was that James, just as a reminder, is the brother of Jesus. And somebody emailed me this week and said, can you just think about what it would have been like for James to grow up in Jesus's household and have to hear things like, why can't you put your clothes away in the hamper like Jesus always does? Why can't you be more like him? Right. So we shouldn't be surprised that James was an early skeptic of Jesus. You would have been too if your brother was claiming to be the savior of the world, trust me. In fact, probably James's conversion story is one of the most miraculous, the fact that he could go from growing up with this brother to saying, you are in fact the king of kings and the lord of lords. You are the way and the truth and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through you, brother Jesus. And so James came to faith and then he writes the book of James, and, and amazingly, in very much contrast to what I would have done if I was Jesus' brother, he never name-drops Jesus one time. Now, he does drop Jesus' teachings all throughout this book, and what we said at the beginning and what we've seen throughout these last seven months is almost everything that James writes can be traced back to something that Jesus said. So clearly, these teachings have greatly influenced him, but he never name-drops Jesus. But what he does do in the book of James is give us something that we have called the quick start guide to the Christian life, right? And then later on, we said that's maybe not strong enough language. This is more like the in-your-face guide to the Christian life. But this, James is extremely practical. In fact, we've studied 108 verses now in the book of James. And out of those 108 verses, 61 of them contain some sort of command, an imperative verb that tells you to do something. It's the highest concentration of imperative verbs, of commands, in any book in all of Scripture. James is very much concerned with what we do, with how we live out the Christian life. And he's writing to a group of people that were experiencing persecution. And so as we've studied now the book of James, there have kind of been two major themes that have risen to the surface. And so I want to go through those briefly this morning and talk about those. And just as a reminder, and hopefully as an encouragement to you. And the first one is this. James calls us to remain steadfast. To remain steadfast. There's a reason that we call this whole entire series Steadfast. James, like I said, is writing to a people who are being persecuted for their faith. And the letter begins with an appeal to remain steadfast in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. He says in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers. 
when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. This is a long time ago that we talked about this, but you might remember that we spent some time figuring out what in the world does it mean to count it all joy when you're facing trials, because I don't know any one of you who, when you've gotten bad news, has just started jumping up and down, saying, woohoo, another trial, here we go, thank goodness, my life was just getting a little bit too easy there, ready for some bumpy road ahead. I don't think so, you can raise your hand if that's you, but that isn't any of you, and it shouldn't be any of you. There's a difference, we said, between happiness and joy, right? We're not called to be happy with our trials. We're not called to minimize our trials, to just pretend like they're nothing. Sometimes I think that can be the kind of Christian-y impulse, right? That something happens to you or maybe even somebody else. Like, oh, it's okay. God's got it under control. Now, just because God is in control doesn't minimize the challenge that might be ahead of you. So how can we count that all joy? Well, the answer is in the knowledge that God never wastes your trials. Never wastes your trials. Maybe that's just the message you need to hear this morning, whatever you're walking through. Whatever that is, God promises he will not waste it in you. Why? Because of the testing of your faith. So James is talking about things that are such trials, they actually go to the very core of pushing us into testing of our faith. And what James says is that produces steadfastness in us. A steadfastness that could not be there if we were not walking through this trial that he's calling us to go through. And he says that steadfastness, when it works itself out in your heart for a while, as painful as it is, as many tears as you might be crying, that steadfastness produces an endurance that makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What a promise. So James is perfecting you in your trial. So even if we don't jump up and, ju- up and down for, for, uh, in celebration when we find out we're going through something, we can still say, praise God. that I can trust that he's working this out. Whatever it is, sometimes you just don't even know the reason why you're going through a trial. As I look out on our church this morning, I even think about uh, back to September when we preached this the first time. And some of the things that you're walking through now, if we're just be real, that you had no idea you were going to have to go through even in September. Think about how different your life is now even from back then. Some of you have lost loved ones unexpectedly. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have just gotten a phone call or found out some news. It's just like, well, my whole life is, as I know it, is now completely upside down. (laughs) And it's been a blessing as your pastor to see you uh, work this passage out in your own heart. To see you able to find joy in the fact that God is producing steadfastness and is perfecting you through that trial. Verse 12 said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, look at this promise, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's just never a promise in scripture that we're not going to have to go through hard things. Boy, I wish there was. I'd preach it, but it's not there. There's no promise that we won't have to walk through trials, but there are incredible promises for us when we go through those trials. Blessed, you are blessed when you remain steadfast, because when you've stood that test, you'll receive the crown of life. You might not get your reward in this life, you might never see it. 
But God promises you will receive the crown of life. And then we see at the end of James in chapter 5, verse 8, it says, You be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You remember we said it like this, the world's all messed up, but Jesus is coming back. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Plant your roots so deep into Christ that that's your hope. Man, I struggle so much. I don't know about you. I struggle so much with finding joy in circumstances, looking for joy in circumstances rather than in Christ. But what if your joy is rooted in your circumstances, your joy can be ripped from you when those circumstances change. And if your joy can be ripped from you that easy, then it wasn't a very deep joy to begin with, was it? Root yourself in Christ, James says. Remain steadfast. And when you're steadfast, you'll produce that endurance and ultimately you will receive the ultimate reward, which is the crown of life. When Jesus comes back. Praise the Lord for that. It's the first theme we saw in the book of James. Be steadfast. Here's the second theme we saw. We saw this over and over and over and over and over again. Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. James talks about this in a lot of different ways. He talks about being double-minded, which literally translates to two-souled, like you're a split person. He says, don't be like that. Don't be a split person. Don't be somebody who says one thing, acts like they believe one thing, and yet lives their life in a completely different way. James 1.22, this is a good everyman and warrior verse. Many of you should be familiar with it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What? Say it. Do what it says. Do what it says. Talked about if, if anyone looks into the word and doesn't do what it says, it's like a man who looks into a mirror and uh, immediately forgets what he looks like. And he said, don't be like that. We talked about, I remember we gave this analogy of like when you're having, I don't know, a big job interview or something, and uh, afterwards you look into the mirror and you realize you had just a big honking piece of food in your teeth the whole time. It was black and it was right there. There was no missing it. Oh, that's like the worst feeling. I get like sweaty thinking about the experiences like that in my life. I get sweaty for a lot of things. So that shouldn't be that uncommon. But. And how foolish would it be then Maybe this is pre, let's change the analogy a little bit, maybe it's pre-job interview, maybe you look, you're like, thank goodness I saw that before it was too late, and then you turn and then you don't do anything to address the issue, or that big old zit that's on your face that needs to be popped. (laughs) Nasty stuff, right? You see it, and then you turn away and you forget it. That is exactly what it's like when we look into God's word and we see what it says and then we just ignore it. That's the exact same thing James says. That's what God's word is. It is a mirror that is held up to our soul to reveal to us those nasty things that need to be cleaned out of our teeth, (laughs) cleaned out of our hearts. And it's a blessing. It's not a condemning thing. God's word isn't a mirror. For those who are in Christ, God's word is not a mirror to condemn, but to give freedom from those things. To those who aren't in Christ, it is condemnation. But to those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. So we look into the mirror of God's word and we say, thank you God for revealing that sin in my heart so I can address it before it's too late. So practice what you preach. Don't be the kind of people who see what they need to do and don't do it. In fact, if you are that kind of person, James says, you might not actually have any faith at all. He says in chapter 2, verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. 
Faith apart from works is dead. And what we saw, it's not a contradiction like uh, some people have thought throughout the history. Uh, It's not a contradiction from what the Apostle Paul says when he talks about uh, your salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It's not by works. It's not a contradiction. What James says means when he says faith apart from works is dead, he's saying a claim to have faith apart from a life that backs it up is completely meaningless. It's completely meaningless. And so for us, James was this really important reminder to take stock of our lives. In some sense, it was a slap in the face. If you take a look at your heart, and only you know your heart. I don't know your heart. You and God know your heart. If you take a look at your heart and say, man, you know what? If I'm honest, I'm not living any differently. It's because I say I'm a follower of Jesus. My faith doesn't affect the way I live one stinking bit. If that's you, then you're in danger of having this, what we talked about as a fake faith. It's not real. There's no substance to it. It's just nothing. I can't answer that question for you. I don't want to, it's easy to kind of move past this. I don't want to necessarily move past this too quickly. If that's you, you need to get right with the Lord. I can't do that for you. All I can do is point you to the Savior, say he has grace upon grace. So go to the cross with your burdens. Because a real encounter with a living God, if you've truly encountered Jesus, if he's really removed your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, if you've truly been born again, if that's really happened, your life is always going to change. Always. Every time. 100%. Again, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't get that food stuck in our teeth. But it does mean that something's going to be different about you. And so if you are saying you're a follower of Jesus, you're in church, but really nothing's different about you, I can't give you any assurance about your life. Again, not because you have to earn your way there, but because a true encounter with Jesus, that is a saving encounter with Jesus, will always manifest itself in your life. So if that's you, let me just say, run to the cross. You'll find grace there. It's not too late. If you're still breathing, you still got time amen run to the cross but if there are those of you for those of us in this room who have faith in Jesus and it does affect the way we live I think this is just a reminder to continue to go to that mirror of God's word and ask where it points out those areas of sin in our hearts and lives and sort it out and live it out when you be the kind of people who practice what we preach who live out the gospel James then gave us all these practical examples of what it means to live out our faith, right? Living out your faith means you do not show favoritism to others. It's such an easy thing to do. You don't show any favoritism to anyone based on their outward appearance, their social status, the clothes they wear, their wealth, the color of their skin. All that is sin. You don't show any favoritism. Living out your faith means that when someone's in need, your brother comes to you hungry and need of clothes, you don't just say, oh, go and be warmed and be fed. It doesn't do anything for them. You help them. You care for people with your actions. Living out your faith looks like carefully guarding your tongue. Remember we saw that a great forest can be set ablaze by a small fire. Your tongue is tiny and it's got a lot of power. Living out your faith looks like guarding your tongue. It means you don't boast about what's going to happen tomorrow, but you submit yourself to the Lord's will and say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that and live. All these things, James says, and more are what characterize the people of God. So as we come to the book of James, and as you hopefully return to the book of James in your own study, in your quiet time, in the future, and we ask the question, how do I live out the Christian life? 
in a lost and confused world that just seems to offer wrong answers at any, every turn. How do I live out the Christian life? And the answer is be steadfast and practice what you preach. Don't give up when life gets hard. And don't give in when temptation just hammers you at every turn. Sink your roots deep into Christ and obey what he tells you in his word. Be steadfast. Practice what you preach. Pretty simple, right? Yes. Yet we mess it up all the time. Yes. It would be much easier if it wasn't for our stinking sinful hearts that are prone to wander away from the Lord every turn. And wouldn't you know it? That is exactly what James addresses in the last two verses of his letter. So if you would, look with me now at James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. It says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And then it ends. <laughs> That's it. That's the end of James. This letter ends in like the Jamesiest way possible. I don't know if Jamesiest is a word, but it... you contrast this ending of from what you'd expect, like say from Paul's letters, which and like you see, look at the end of the of Ephesians will be on your screen. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now this is kind of a standard ending to a letter. And yet James just ends with what? What else? Another command. Command to watch out for your brothers and sisters in Christ who have wandered away and tried to bring them back. Save that person's soul from death. Which when you think about it, makes perfect sense in the context of James. If James is all about being steadfast and practicing what you preach and pronouncing judgment to those who are uh, not doing these things, then it makes perfect sense that the end of James would address what do we do when people aren't doing these things? What do we do when people are wandering from the truth? And I love that phrase, wandering from the truth. If anyone among you, was wan if anyone among you wanders from the truth, because that, is exactly how it happens, isn't it? Very rarely, if ever, in fact, I might even go out as far to say never, does somebody have just like a deep and vibrant relationship with the Lord, and then all of a sudden one day they decide to wake up and just give it all up, right? And just sprint away from the truth. That's not what happens. It's a wandering from the truth. One of the scariest moments that can happen as a parent is uh, when you are uh, with your child in a store or something and they have wander away from you. Isn't that a scary thing? It happened to Emily and I one time. Uh, we were doing Christmas shopping, so we were in different parts of Target. And uh, I was with Owen, and uh, she was by herself. And I were looking at stuff, and I looked down, and there's Owen. And then I looked at more stuff, and then I looked down just about that quick. At least it felt like it, and he was gone gone, gone, like he was not anywhere to be found. And so what do you do? Panic <laughs> immediately. Owen, Owen, where are you? And he sometimes he's a stinker who's like hiding in the clothes. So I'm like, just like a crazy person, right? Just looking everywhere. What had happened in Owen's heart in that moment when he uh, wandered away? Did he just, was he thinking to himself, you know what? I'm just done being a part of this family. I'm just ready to go make it out on my own. It's time I saw a lot of candy in aisle three, so if I can just make my way over there, I think I can last for a long time. Got clothes here. No. What happened? 
He saw something that he wanted that looked better to his eyes, that he wanted more than he wanted to be standing next to me. And is that not what happens in our hearts when we wander away from the truth? That looks just a little bit more attractive. You know what? I think I can have that and God. That's just a little sin, and everyone seems to be doing it anyway. It doesn't matter. You know, really, these things in the world look really good to me. I can still kind of really be all about these things, and I can give money to the church. I can show up every once in a while. I'm in the world. It's like that. So what do we do when that happens? We need to keep a humility among ourselves to say that could happen to any one of us. Like the hymnist says, and come thou fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts, courts above. We're all prone to wander away from the truth. It can happen to any of us. Which is why this passage is so important. And ultimately, it's why church membership is so important. And take this in a little bit of a direction that might seem strange at first. This is why church membership is so important. What do we do when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ starting to take those steps? Not big steps, just small steps. Maybe they've gotten farther and farther out. What do we do? James says, chase them down. (laughs) Chase them down. Chase down your wandering brothers and sisters. And we'll talk more about how we're supposed to do that in a moment. But as brothers and sisters in Christ called to membership together, we're called to look out for one another and keep one another from wandering. So if you ask me, what's the number one reason church membership is important? Why do you want to be a church member, Mike? I would not say because of serving or because of giving or any of these other things that we maybe think about when we think about church membership. Those things are part of it, but that's not the reason. Master Mike, why is it so important to you to be a church member? Why will I be a church member for the rest of my life, no matter how many days the Lord allows me to be in a pastoral role or just as a role member of the flock of God? Why is it so important to me? Because I know that I have sinful desires in my heart that make me prone to wander away, and I need the family of God to keep me accountable to make sure that I don't stray too far from the truth. That's it. That's the number one reason it's so important. It's about the covenant that we make as brothers and sisters in Christ to say these are the people that God is calling me to live these things out among These aren't just like abstract ideas. It's people. It's flesh and blood that we're called to. And it's not just enough to say I'm part of the universal church, so I don't need to be a member of a local church. If you're in Christ, you are a member of the universal church, and together we'll be celebrating in heaven forever. But my brother in Christ in Africa, who is my brother, but I've never met him yet, can't help me when I'm wandering from the truth. Bring me back. Because he doesn't know me. So we're not called to be responsible to every Christian everywhere. We're called to be responsible to those who we made a covenant together with in the local body here at Rock Prairie Church, if this is your church home. 
just like when you get married, you are uh, not responsible for, now that you're a married person, you are uh, responsible for all husbands or all wives everywhere, right? No. It's a person. It's your spouse. Same thing with church membership. That's why it's so important. It's a covenant that we make together. One of the ways we live this out as a church with our church leadership is pastor and deacon care group. So if you become a member of our church, you're then placed in a a care group, which is not, you don't meet with them, but it just means that you have a pastor or a deacon who is responsible to know you, to know your life, to know what you're going through, to know how we can be praying for you, and to be able to give an account for you. We're next week going to welcome 18 new members at Rock Prairie Church, which is just awesome. It's a huge blessing, which means 18 more souls that we in leadership are responsible for and 18 more souls that we as uh, a church, the family of God, are responsible to chase down if they're wandering. And they're responsible to chase us down if we're wandering. We're called to relationship with one another as members of the body of Christ. But here's the thing. Here's the caveat with all that. When we do that, when we chase down our wandering brothers and sisters, we're called to do so humbly and in love, okay? Don't miss this. If you're hearing me right now and you're like, yes, finally, I get to tell some people what I really think about how they're living. Finally, I get to show them that I'm right and they're wrong. You're thinking about it all wrong, okay? Jesus said, remove the log in your eye before you address the speck in your brother's eye. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So it's a spirit of gentleness that we're called to, right? And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, don't think that you're immune to falling into that same trap. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I love that verse. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. There's no better verse that describes my, uh, my basketball game than that one. I think I'm something, but I'm nothing. I deceive myself. But hopefully that doesn't describe me spiritually. So like I said, if you're hearing this command to chase down your wandering brothers and sisters, and you're like, oh, thank goodness, Finally. That you have the wrong attitude. Church membership is about protecting one another from wandering off and doing so humbly and in love. I never finished the story about uh, Owen wandering away in Target. Like I said, I was in a panic, and I had to make that uh, extremely humbling phone call to my wife, which I didn't want to make. Uh, sweetie, <laughs> I don't know where Owen is. What? <laughs> so she comes running over, and then we're just tearing it all throughout the store, and um, all of a sudden we hear this voice, and incredibly, uh, Jessica Henry's sister, uh, who uh, Je- Jessica goes to our church, as you know, and her sister, who had visited uh, Rock Prairie one time, I think maybe two times, somehow, by God's grace, recognized Owen and brought him back and looked for us and came uh, and says, Is this your son? Yes. What did she do? She sees this child wandering where he shouldn't be. She bends down. She says, hey, buddy, let me help you find your dad. That is exactly the picture of what we're called to do, church. We don't show our superiority over those who are wandering because we humbly know that could be us, and they're probably really hurting 
No, we look for them, we find them, and we say, will you just please let me help you find your dad? He's looking for you. He's sick about you. He wants you to come back. And when you return to him, he's going to come to you with open arms, running. So let me help you find him. Let me go with you together. Might be hard. We might have a long way to go. But I want to help you find your dad. That's the kind of community I want this church to continue to be. Amen? That's the kind of community I want to be a part of, to know that if I start to wander off, somebody's going to bring me back. And if you start to wander off, somebody's going to bring you back. When that world looks more attractive than my father, my heavenly father, I'm not going to be just left out to chase those things. And neither will you. Because your father loves you. He wants you to return That's what we're called to do. Our brothers and sisters are wandering away and do it humbly and in love. And I just thank the Lord so much for the book of James. certainly changed me. It's changed my heart. Reminder to be steadfast in trial, to live out what we preach, and to know that that kind of community we're called to is a community that loves one another, that bears one another's burdens. And when somebody wanders off, we bring them back to help them find their dad. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.